One night I woke up, I was lying on my back and Tico held my wrist and he's just like, don't move. And, and I could feel this hot air just coming over me, just in these waves of hot, stinking air and realized what was happening is this lion had sat down right behind us and, and he was just staring at us as we were lying in this tent sleeping. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Hello, listeners. Today I have our first guest from Botswana, which is amazing. She's originally from Canada. Her name is Leslie McNutt. She is the co-founder of Wild and Trust, the director of social programs and director of coaching conservation. And she is also one of the Cincinnati Zoo's leaders, favorite people in the world. I wanna welcome Leslie. Thank you, Sarah. It's really, really nice to be here. and. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out and inviting me. Yeah. All right. So give us, give our listeners a little bit of background. Where did you grow up? And then how the heck did you get to Botswana? <laughs> Good question. Not the obvious trajectory. <laughs> so I grew up in Ontario, Canada, um, just outside of Toronto. I, I, to skip ahead, for some reason, had this thing about Africa when I was a kid. Um, but I grew up there. I went to high school just out in Oakville, Ontario. I went to university. I did my undergrad at a university called Queens in Kingston, Ontario. And as soon as I was done that, I decided to pack up and start moving around the world and go, to go to Africa. And um, a couple of reasons. One is because I just always thought I was going to go there. And so as soon as I could, I did. And um, also I was a, I worked as a whitewater kayaker as a summer job all through university. And so I was setting out to find some of the great rivers of the world. And the Zambezi in Zimbabwe is one of those. And so I was kind of on a mission and kind of on, um, on a, on a, on a, on a unplanned trip to um, go and explore Africa as well as some of the rivers. Can I ask you, the uh, was there something, was, was there something when you were young that you either read or knew somebody or why Africa? Do you recall? Gosh, um, honestly, I have no idea other than I had a giraffe a life-size giraffe when I was four in my room, yeah. stuffed a stuffed giraffe, and his name was Jerome, and we were tight. And <laughs> I guess maybe, I don't know, Jerome might have been the reason that I felt I needed to go to Africa all my life. So be careful when you what, oh what toys you put in your kids' cribs because that they may influence their entire life trajectory. That's right. That's really funny. Okay, so um, take us forward. So you you want to travel, you want to you want to raft all these wonderful rivers, and then what happens? 
So, okay, so I was, I was kayaking. I, I worked for World Wildlife Fund in Madagascar when I first started. I did this extraordinary four-month project there where I was working in a really remote part of Madagascar. That was my, my really my introduction to Africa. And then I moved across to, and worked in Kenya and worked my way down Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Malawi, Zimbabwe, ended up on the Zambezi. But really I was, I was already interested in conservation and already interested in trying to figure out where I, where I would end up and how I was going to kind of create myself in the world of conservation. Um, and so although I was just really there exploring and, and, and kayaking, I, I was still thinking about and working for conservation organizations back then. Um, and I moved on from Africa and I ended up in New Zealand and Australia, was there for the better part of a year, um, had some adventures there including a few broken bones on a on a river in northern australia and spent some time recovering had some really great experiences as a result of that recovery um went back to canada at the end of a two-year stint of traveling yeah got a job with our canadian ministry of the environment um didn't work out for me i thought it wasn't as exciting as my previous two years and so okay. I packed my bags two years later and decided to move back to Africa. Um, to when I say Africa, I'm just crazy when I, it's a huge continent. So I, um, right. I hate it when people say that. So sorry, I decided <laughs> to come back to Southern Africa and live and work in yeah. in Johannesburg, where I thought I could figure out who was doing what and and who the players were in the world of um, conservation and research. And so I stayed and lived in Johannesburg for a little bit of time, not long, like a few weeks. I got a job to um, attend some meetings in Mound, Botswana, yeah. and for a guy who lived in Colorado who couldn't go to these meetings. And so I was, because I created okay. this little company, and so I got hired to go to attend these meetings, and I met my now husband basically the first five minutes off that airplane when I landed in Mount. And that was 29 years ago. And okay, so uh, when you met him, was it love at first sight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was? It was. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. And so your husband, so listeners, so she is a co-founder. Her husband, Tico, is also a founder, right? It's the two of you. Correct. So he was already here. He was doing his PhD yeah. research on African wild dogs. So he's American yes. from Seattle. He was w w um, doing his PhD out of the University of California, Davis. And he did his, he was doing his research on these social carnivores, African wild dogs. So he was already here. He had a setup. He had a camp. He had a research camp. Um, yeah. And, and I had to interview him as part of this job I'd been hired for, I was supposed to interview a bunch of people that lived in this small town um, that were involved in conservation right. to find out uh, you know, the things that this, this, this research project was about to see what people thought about it. Anyway, he was, he was one of the four people I had to interview. Leslie, and it's, it is true, right? You guys lived out of a tent for a long time, right? We did, we certainly did, so. Um, his the, the was that research camp is 
quite remote and in the middle of the wildlife area, just outside the Moraimi Game Reserve in the Okavango Delta. So we lived in our tented research camp for more than a decade. Okay, can I ask you some um, <laughs> simple person questions? One, yeah. did you ever fear for your life that a wild animal would hurt you guys? Yes. Can Often. you tell a story? <laughs> Often. Um, okay, so the, 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 the ones that come to mind are the ones that are right after my, our first son was born. So he was born in 1996, and I, I went there in 1992. So that was four years after. And he was an infant. He wasn't actually even supposed to have been born yet because he was so premature. Um, so he was a tiny, tiny, tiny infant. And we were asleep in our tent. And our tent is a, it's a big sort of three or four by four meter canvas tent that's, you know, sort of like a big room. But it's on the ground and it has what they call shade cloth windows. And so it's just like a mesh window all, all along both sides. Uh -huh. And the lions would come through camp most nights after they'd been out hunting and they would walk along the side of our tent and go have a drink at the shower, which was just two meters outside the back of our tent. But when you have a shower every day for a long time, there's a sort of a mud um, clay um, sealant that sort of happens that so there's it's like a pan it holds water anyway the lines got to know that there was water there so these lines would often come and have a drink anyway one night I woke up I was lying on my back and Tico held my wrist and he's just like don't move and and I could feel this hot air just coming over me just in these oh waves God. of hot stinking air and realized what was happening is this lion had sat down right behind us and, and like literally his his head is like sort of like with his big mane sort of a meter wide and he was just staring at us as we were lying in this tent sleeping and not sleeping anymore anyway that was probably the most adrenaline filled moment of my early life with kids in camp um he didn't do anything so tico said just don't move grab he grabbed what he did is he grabbed a flashlight one of those big mag lights he used to have those giant flashlights and he put it up against the window of the tent, the, the mesh of the tent, thinking that would scare him. And all it did was illuminate this line, and he just kept staring at us. Luckily, he was full, and we were part of his world, and he wasn't threatened by us, and we, he just walked away um, and carried on with his night. Uh, and luckily, our infant son did not wake up and scream at the time that that happened. Anyway, that was right. one of... That was that was so, one. So, like when you had young children, when you had young children, um, could you allow them to walk around by themselves? No. Do you know what no. I mean? No. no. They always had to be attended to. Um, you know, as they got a bit older, you could you know, be around with them. We had lots of rules, and we swept our camp in the sand every day to make sure that we could see if there were any snake tracks. And we could see sort of who was in the neighborhood that day or who had been in camp overnight just for all the, the tracks and the footprints. So you have to keep incredibly vigilant. Um, yes. And you know, you don't leave a child out of your sight and not much more than a couple meters away during the day. You know, you because we were, we were permanently based there, it was 
you become yeah. part of the natural environment. You become part of, mm -hmm. they expect, and all of those animals that are in that territory, they respect all of that, typically. Um, nighttime, different story. You, you know, you don't want to be wandering around in the night. You can't, you can't, uh, can't predict what's going to happen um, as, as easily as you can during the day. But You know, I was thinking um, for all those parents listening who had to teach their children how to cross the street safely, right? <laughs> Remember, we all went to the safety classes for walking across the street. You had different safety classes. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, it's funny. It's just different. Like, I honestly felt yeah. so much more comfortable in camp with my kids than I did in the city. Um, did I, 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 I just didn't, didn't you know, I, I didn't. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of the things that you cannot control. I felt like I could control my environment. It was, you know, it's small. It's intact. There's everything that you create. You have to manage everything about it. And in the city or in any any place else, you have little control yeah. over those things, buses and people, and whatever all those other frightening things are. So I cars, cars yeah. anything, yeah. So our wrists are very different, yes, but not, not, you know, not any more bigger. I don't think. All right, those were. I love those stories, and I'm sure our listeners will be so pumped to hear, just because we get used to what normal looks like for us in the US and uh, those are not everyday experiences for us. So let's move into the work, which is really your life's vocation, right? Which is conservation. And the other day you and I talked about um, what has been your biggest challenge, but your greatest uh, lesson. So if you wanna share, take us through the work that you did and then your big aha moment. Yeah, okay. Um, I hope it's not too long of a story. Um, it's going to be cause perfect. Like, so, so when I went to Botswana, I, I had done an undergraduate degree and decided to go back and do my graduate work. And so I did my graduate work in Montreal in, in a program in development anthropology, anthropology of development. And the idea was we would complement um, each other, my husband's a an animal behaviorist and a natural scientist, and I was a social scientist. And the biggest con conservation issue or challenge across the world and in Botswana as well, is that people need to be involved in the conservation solutions. And so doing conservation isn't just about doing science and it isn't just about understanding the needs of the animals, it's about translating those questions and those and those well, the, the answers to those questions to people so that people can affect change. And so it yeah. made sense. And it was what I was had already sort of done in my undergrad as a cultural geographer, but um, I just changed the name and called it development anthropology, but sort of it was on the same trajectory. And I came back to Botswana after that in 1996 and started doing my research, specifically looking at um, the conflict and mitigating, trying to mitigate conflict between people and wildlife on those boundaries, okay. on the periphery of our study area that had long been established for the, for the large carnivore study. And so I spent years, literally, trying to in, 
impart knowledge and create behavior change within the communities that lived on those on those on the edges to try to have yeah. to get them to have a more empathetic relationship with wildlife to have a more conservation minded behavior or an ethos of conservation and so so basically trying to to um, use knowledge to change behavior to get them to stop killing wildlife in situations of hunting conflict, yeah right? or killing i guess would it be hunting or killing or what well, what's it's, the right it's word Ill, it's there it's illegal the illegal offtake of wildlife for bush meat so for food as well as poaching um, and just okay. pure what we call problem animal control. So if if animals, wild animals, oh. are actually um, in threatening people and or threatening their livelihoods or their crops, they're considered problem animals and are often exterminated for for that for that reason. Yeah. And so trying to create a situation where there's more the ability to coexist. We need to coexist in these same habitats. And as peoples and populations grow and habitats shrink, obviously the conflict grows. And so finding ways to create that coexistence, well, methods and mechanisms for coexistence was really what I was attempting to do. And doing it through um, sort of traditional or um, um, conventional methods, basically, of, of educating, yeah. educating people. And what had been done in the past? Um, a lot of you were doing village um, meetings. Um, I tried to present information in the villages. I did surveys and trying to understand what it was people were worried about and trying to find the challenges that they're facing and then try to come up with like tangible solutions to to give them tools to to change their either change their livelihoods or have in different um, pr pr productive ways of, of of creating jobs and 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 food security um but mm -hmm. as well as simply like for example i thought because wild dogs are territorial they live in okay. vast areas they need anywhere between four and nine hundred square kilometers to a single pack of wild dogs and they're also nomadic throughout most of their year so nine months out of the year, they're nomadic throughout that entire territory. And so they're moving around. And you, and if you happen to be on the edge of that, you won't see them those nine months more than maybe once every six weeks, they'll come and they'll go. But if those dogs okay. are denning, and that during the denning season, when they're having pups, they're sedentary for a few weeks a year. And if you happen to be okay. near of where those dogs are denning, and those dogs are hunting, and you happen to be on the edge, and they happen to be hunting, and they might kill some of your livestock, then you are going to be impacted. But right. I thought that if I was able to explain that and then give mm -hmm. that sort of information, then people would go, okay, I get it. So we just oh. have to work with these three months, and we can work together for the rest of it. And um, anyway, as an example. so. And also, um, when you say wild dogs, that's not what Americans might think as like a um, a wild dog. These are African wild dogs. Thank so you for pointing right, that out. Absolutely not like a correct. feral. That's not the right word, feral. But now that is okay. the right okay. word. It, they are not feral dogs. Oh, it is. So absolutely. Right. So they. Okay. It's a, a species unto its own, separated from the canid wolf lineage three million years ago. It is very, very separate, and it's a unique species. African wild dogs, also known as painted wolf, painted hunting dogs, 
and painted wolves. So that, but they're African wild dogs, you're quite correct, are not feral dogs. Okay, cool. They're not feral dogs. Okay, so they're not receiving it. And and also, did you ever wonder if they weren't receiving it because you're not one of them? Um... Yeah, there's there's a small. Or did they think of you as one of them since you lived there? Well, I hadn't lived here that long, and and no, I don't think it was so much that that I wasn't one of them. Um, is that there was a time, and this was during the mid '90s, when there was a, a the really really um, the epidemic of HIV and AIDS. And Botswana has the dubious distinction of having the highest per capita HIV and AIDS population in the world at the time. And so what really happened was I was going and spending time trying to impart information and affect change and nothing was changing. People weren't listening to me. People weren't changing their behaviors. I wasn't getting any any, um, real impact from our conservation message. So I just thought, what is it? Why are they not listening? Why are they not hearing? And I came home. Wait, hold on. So, so people weren't listening because the the whole stress of HIV/AIDS was really a distractor. Is that what you're saying? Like it was. Yeah. People were more focused on living than they were about the conservation. Is that what you're saying? Correct. So, they really didn't have what we call a future orientation. There was so much fear and or lack of faith in one's future that they weren't looking at mm-hmm. the future. They weren't thinking about what it was going to look like because they weren't necessarily planning to to be there. Um, And so I really, really decided that one day, I literally came home in tears from long days in in these community meetings and said, I just don't think it's working. It's not. I'm not getting anywhere. Have to do. I'm doing something wrong. So they weren't. This is. This was then what we worked out was that it, that the reason was that there was no no focus on what we were talking about. It could, people couldn't focus on what we were talking about and what like the faith, sorry, the fate of an endangered wild dog in the future, when they're yeah. not necessarily planning to be here in the future. They have much more, arguably important things like food security and their children, their children's health and their own health to think about. So, we stopped. I stopped right. doing what I did. Um, gave up on adults, sorry to say, and started realizing that we needed to have a fundamental core value shift in order for change, the the meaningful change that we're looking for to happen. And that meant that we needed to get kids to believe in their futures. We needed to start with children so that when they grew up to be that age, they weren't doing the same things and having the same thinking, thoughts, behaviors as their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins. How did you have that? How did you figure that out? Um, Gee, that's a good question through, um, I'm an anthropologist. So I looked back and and at everything that I had done and picked it apart and went, what, like, what, what is it? And also there's this certain certain amount of um, disdain, I guess, for the conventional practices where you say, well, we're gonna do this and then we're gonna keep doing it. And you've been doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And then a generation yeah. later, you're still doing exactly the same thing. And I did think at the time, gee, I've been sitting in these meetings for 10 years, we've been having the same discussions. And what, like 20 years later, I'm mean, gonna sit in the same meeting and have the same, same discussion with the same challenges that we haven't fixed. And I really don't want that to be. Um, 
So that, yes, so that was the beginning of the understanding. So it's taken me a long time. So sorry, like I said, it takes a long time to get to that part of the story, but. It's just, it's <laughs> fascinating. And it also is kind of like that smoking campaign in whatever it was, the 80s or 90s, that got children to go home and talk to their parents about the bad effects of smoking versus um, marketing to those parents about quitting, right? So absolutely, I absolutely. So I knew, I knew the value of, of addressing these issues with kids because kids can affect change. And I don't believe you need to wait generations for change to happen. Actually, you just need to be really specific with a single generation. And like you say, we all taught our parents smoking was bad. We, as kids, were responsible for the stopping smoking and reuse and recycle. We were, we were the green generation, we brought it home. And I absolutely knew and, right. and agree that we, that we need to, and kids will teach their parents. And kids are very vociferous when they believe something with their, 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 you know, their, their morality and they get very upset with their parents if they're not doing the right thing. So, so we changed, we started addressing all of our, 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 our uh, messages towards children and with the core um, aim of, of creating respect for self first. So a, a core respect for yourself with the intention of choosing to have a future. Um, and then respect for others and those around you, people and animals and the world, as well as then respect for the environment. So in that order, we knew that we needed to get kids to make better decisions because they were, they, it was coming from within. Um, we didn't want those kids to be the same as their, as their adult peers or their adult mentors, I should say. So we began with a program that at the time I called Football for Life. So we attached our messages to sport and we started teaching the inherent, through sport, those just really basic inherent messages that sport can offer about health and fitness and wellness yeah. and hydration. And that's so the self part. And then for others, respecting your team members, making sure you show up on time, making sure you do your best that you can. So there's just so many inherent values that sport can offer just on its own. And then yeah. eventually added the, the wildlife piece into that, which is what then became, became learning from our learning from wildlife model. So what are you most proud of today about that? Um, well, the, the trajectory of that is, I guess it's the, um, the, the, the commitment to it. Um, and I'm a kind of a firm believer in the value of longevity and that you, if you mm -hmm. do stick to it, you do get better at it. Um, my husband's favorite quote is from Gary Player, who said, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. So I, I, I am really, I worked through something, I worked through a problem, and, and I tried something, and then I, I, we adapted it every time through, through what we were faced with and the challenges we were faced with. So we started with Football for Life. I had a partner that was um, actually a soccer um, had a soccer coaching company in New Jersey. He brought these amazing coaches across. We had this amazing program that started every year in here in, in Botswana. And we had this fantastic program, but 
it turned out that was a soccer program. Everyone knew it because it was soccer and everyone loved it. Mm. And we were attaching messages of conservation, but we weren't attaching them properly and, and fully because we were like asking questions yeah. about animals or they were getting a t-shirt that had an animal on it. But it turns out after some years we realized actually, no, we're not fully, everyone remembered the soccer, but not the animals. So we changed the name. We called it coaching conservation. I realized I needed to put the name into what we do. And then we started yeah. bringing the animals themselves. Instead of talking about the animals, we brought the animals in as the heroes, as the mentors. Uh, so every lesson then became taught by a single animal. So today is brought to you by the cheetah. And so you're first going to learn about the cheetah. You're going to meet the cheetah. And you're going to learn about speed, balance, and agility, because that is the cheetah's greatest strength. That's what makes it successful in the wild. So did you have a cheetah like in captivity that was injured uh, or something? Like how did no, you no, get no, the no. cheetah? No, 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 sorry, virtually. It's, we, never, we never had any animals actually involved in playing soccer, but they okay. were. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I didn't think they would play soccer, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you like. Okay, sorry, I, right. my mistake. Wait, my mistake. giggle at me, okay. It was, it, you know, the whole thing is about creating an empathetic relationship with animals so that people, kids right. can value them. We truly believe you can't value something until yeah. you know something about it and you have a relationship with it. And it's so important. So were you, yeah, were those kids from the, like within Africa or all over the world? No, these are all local kids living in villages the ones that are on the periphery of the wildlife areas, the ones who are most impacted by wildlife. Your target. Our target. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, do you have a favorite story of one of those kids, either who stayed on or, um, you know, a really cool story with their, how their relationship with um, wildlife changed? I do. Um, so, this youngster who started in grade five, because that's our target age. Um, and went through the program. She she had never played soccer before. The soccer is not necessarily a, a girl's game. Um, at least it wasn't then. And so soccer was the, the leveler for everything. But also these girls, that they, they also excelled sometimes so much faster than the boys because they hadn't had a lot of chance before. And so they found their power. She yeah. then went on. She continued to play with the boys because she wasn't, um, there wasn't enough girls at the time. She went on to high school. She got a scholarship to, and then she started her own soccer league. She got, she was supported by Botswana itself. And um, then she came back to us and she was a coach for coaching conservation. And she was one of our you know, star coaches as, as, a, as a soccer coach, um, which is just, and, and a brilliant, she, the influence that she said it had, it just gave her the confidence to move on and to do what she wanted to do with her soccer. Um, from a wildlife point of view, so there's both of those yeah, tangents. Yeah, and the, right. That Human sort of speaks and... to, the, to the value of why we use sport as our, as our mechanism and as our right. platform. Because, Which I love. Because kids want to play. Cause, yeah. Because that. Uh, by the way, so everybody adults. wants to play. Well, I exactly. want to play. Yeah. Play. So if we can reach people where 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 they want to be, 
then we can reach their whole person, their whole self, their whole authentic self. And that she just needed to be a professional soccer player. Um, and she didn't know it. So that's, that's one of that's my cool. lovely. Um, and then I've had lots of kids who've actually ended up in as, as guides, as rangers, as in, in the conservation world and saying their first, their first experience with actually seeing wildlife as something important. And that's my favorite quote of all. I said, what did you learn from coaching conservation that you didn't know before? And the best answer of all time still is, I didn't know wild animals were important. Oh. I do now. And so that, that does, it's those kinds of, we give kids experiences that allow them to see the world differently, see their relationship and see the connection they have and that they're not that different than animals. And, and then able to take that on in, as they, you know, the decisions they make later in life um, but really understand that that everything is valuable and that we really are truly all connected and everyone deserves their place in the world. Here, here on that one. Leslie, for um, on the the conservation side, what successes have you seen in Botswana or how do you measure impact, I guess? Is it number of animals? How do you measure that conservation impact? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that's the million dollar question. It's really hard to measure impact in, in, in the, in the uh, education. It's um, trickier because it's long-term. So we have a couple of assessment tools that we use. One is um, called the capabilities analysis. So we are looking at how you provide functions and, and new capabilities to kids, how they use them to in their own worlds to make change we call functions, and then agency, how do they use it to actually create change outside of themselves. So we use those tools to see how we've impacted kids in their experience. So we put them through this program they experience something and then we see how they come out. What do they value basically that they didn't previously value? So we yeah. also asked them those questions before, what's important to you? And then afterwards we ask what's important to you and almost almost 100% include wildlife or animals in some way in the things that they value at the other end of the program. So that's exciting and interesting and fun from an education point of view. From a natural science point of view, looking at successes in conservation in Botswana, um, we look at populations. We look at, you know, okay. are we are we successfully maintaining um, a healthy population of all of an intact ecosystem, which which means all yes. of the that are required to create a healthy ecosystem of apex predators all the way down to invertebrates. So there's a lot of work that is done just um, making sure that we understand those population dynamics and, and prey densities and um, disease impacts. Um, and that as well as mostly, as I said earlier, it's about, it's about people. Are we, actually, um, are we actually impact, or sorry, influencing and our laws and practices evolving that are that are keeping up with the challenges of 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 those encroachments on those habitats and is the tourism industry keeping up with their utilizing those resources 
and exploiting them, not in a bad sense of exploit, but using sure, sure, sure. wildlife resources in order to create a tourism economy. And that's critical and important, and everyone relies on it here. Are we making sure that the impacts of the tourism aren't negatively um, um, impacting the wildlife populations? And there are ways to, to measure that. And the tourism industry, you know, changing practices is, is, has been quite um, fluid and dynamic. Okay. So, Leslie, knowing that, you know, the purpose of our whole talk is around failing forward, what were the biggest learning lessons that you've gotten from your work? So, I love the name Failing Forward, actually. Um, I think that Thank I you. think some of your listeners don't, but um, I, I think the lessons I think are... the listeners like it, it's the guests. Oh, is that it? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think what I learned was that over this, I'm going to come in, in, into these, these challenges, and many of them didn't work, and I just kept trying and adapting to, to do new things. And, and eventually, over time, but a really long time, like a decade, it took yeah. to get to where we were. And so the, the value is, what I learned was there's value in longevity. There's value in trying again. There's value in continuing to try because you do get to know something pretty well if you do it long enough. And you should trust your judgment and trust your instincts and try something different until it actually does work. And we were validated by the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015 when it turns out that the product that we had come up with, how to, to actually teach through play and try to, yeah. it, it, to really engage with the power of sport um, was exactly what was directed by the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals in terms of how to, to, to educate children through emotional, social, and cognitive, as well as using science, as well as making sure you address kids at an early age. So we had, a, we had just organically come up with something that it turns out the UN had as a directive for, for, to, to be able to do that by 2030. So my learning was don't give up, wow. keep going, trust yourself, and believe that, that you don't need to change if it doesn't go well, just just keep at it. Well, okay, that is a perfect ending. And I wanna say thank you. Thank you for, um, God, I, I know it's probably challenging days, although I know it's, I know you love the work you do, but you are making the planet a better place for us and for all of our generations to come. So thank you. And thank you, Sarah, and thanks for, for allowing us to have a voice. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. Leslie, this whole thing of the wolves, re, they're reintroducing the wolves into Yellowstone. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, so the wolves are the wild dogs that we work with, African wild dogs, are basically Africa's wolf, exactly the same. So many, many, many of the challenges that we work with are exactly the same as the challenges that are being faced in, in Yellowstone. So they, they actually hold the same place in, in, as an apex predator. Um, and so this, I didn't know that. There, is, there is an absolutely critical and essential role that wolves play in maintaining a healthy ecosystem. 
and there is a fantastic short film that helps i i can't um think of it right now i wish i maybe i should have sure. sorry i'll go back no that's okay we can add it in um, listeners will add it in the notes there's no a, we can add it in the notes if you don't remember yeah um so there you cannot have a healthy ecosystem without apex predators in order to maintain that the the check and balance on everybody else in that food chain so what's really really interesting is when since the wolves have been reintroduced everything has come back in balance everything the grasslands the elk populations the riverine the riparian systems have become um, healthy again it all can be tracked back to the introduction of wolves. It's critical. We are all connected. You can't do have a healthy ecosystem without all of its components, and wolves are essential to that. 